Amen. Take your copy of God's Word, if you will, this morning, and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, as we begin in verse 32, looking at the Lord's Word together this morning and talking about the needs that people have and how we as God's people are called to meet those needs, how we are called to somehow address the needs that God has put before us. Now, I know that when I talk about needs, especially in the church context, um, I am setting myself up for possible misunderstanding. Because in our culture today, there are a lot of people that go to certain churches and they're like, i got to make sure that my needs are met. And when they're talking about their needs being met, that means that, you know, they've got to sing so many hymns and so many different uh, praise songs and they've got to be able to get the service done in an hour and the preacher has to finish in 20 minutes. Lord forbid. But there are so many different ways in which people have the needs. Uh, uh, somebody, somebody came to me this morning, one of my deacons, uh, um, Kip, I'm just going to call you out. Kip Franklin came to me this morning and he said, hey, have you got the power that that person had? You know the person you were talking about a few weeks ago? Actually, Billy Rich was talking to me about that too, about being able to pray for our needs and saying, Lord, would you stop the rain? Would you stop the rain? And, and I said, you know, I'm not sure I've got quite that power, but we can pray together and ask the Lord, because I'm kind of ready too, aren't you? I'm ready for some sunshine along the way. But, um, but I know that when I talk about needs, especially in our culture, a culture that seems to relish its own personal needs each and every day, that I know that there is the opportunity for confusion. But I want you to hear that within the church context, there is an appropriate there is a right way in which we are to meet people's needs. And I want you to see that here in this passage as we look in chapter 4, and then we'll skip over to a few verses in chapter 5 in just a bit. But I want you to hear how this church, the early church, was united, how they were united not only in prayer, as we saw last week, but they were united in practice, in the way they met people's needs. It begins in verse 32. It says... Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Again, just note the incredible unity of the church. It's like there is one heartbeat. There is one purpose. There is one mind that you find within the church. And it is demonstrated in its practice. It says, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And Joseph, or some translations may say Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here you have the early church gathering together. They have united themselves in prayer. They have united themselves in purpose. And now they unite themselves in practice of meeting each other's needs. It says that they hold all things in common. Now, I want to 
kind of address a couple things here. Because I feel like, again, that there could be some misunderstanding around this passage. There are a lot of people who have taken this passage and they have advocated for political, governmental theories and all kinds of things. They've even suggested that here the early church were, commun they were communist in some way. Well, they were communal in the way they were thinking about one another. But as I read through this, there is nothing that suggests communism or socialism that we are to adopt today. And some of you say, well, why is that? And a couple people asked me last week or a few weeks ago when we were looking at chapter 2, of, of why you would say that it's not a communistic or socialistic model. Well, first of all, when you're reading through this, understand Dr. Luke is not worried about governmental theory. Dr. Luke is not concerned about the political ramifications or aspirations of anybody. So when he's writing here under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he is not coming and saying, hey, I'm giving you some type of governmental example to follow. You and I are too many individuals read too much into what Dr. Luke is trying to say. It is not some type of economic philosophy or governmental theory that he is suggesting. Rather, what he wants you to understand is that the people of God were so moved by the Holy Spirit in their life, that when they saw a need, they met that need. They were not waiting on the government. They weren't trying to institute some type of philosophical or political theory. They were just, hey, meeting the needs as they saw them because they were the people of God. There was no transfer of ownership, no central uh, or no control of production or income, no requirement to surrender property to the community. It was all voluntary. As the people saw the need, they would bring. As a matter of fact, the more I've studied this scripture, and I've studied this, and I've studied a lot of the rest of Acts, as I've looked at this idea that is circulating out there that somehow Christians should be able to uh, rally around a socialistic or communistic type of theory, I've, went, I've gone through to make sure that I don't misunderstand the scripture in this. I want the scripture to speak to me, not me, the scripture. Right? So when I'm looking at this, I still see that there is some ownership. There is voluntary bringing forth of goods as there was the need. As a matter of fact, later on, Acts chapter 12, verse, verses 12 through 13, Mary, the mother of John Mark, still owns her house. And what's that, ladies? What's that? I say ladies. Guys, there was a maid there as well. Read that. She had a house and she had a maid. So those things were not necessarily forbidden by the early church. I really thought I'd get somebody to say amen on the maid thing. <laughs> Disappointed me this morning just a little bit. They had some personal ownership. It was like they heard a need and they said, you know what? God's blessed me, so let me bring forth that type of resource. If it was a standard, if everybody had already given and, and brought everything together and sold everything, then why would Barnabas be so lauded at the end of this chapter about how he sold land and brought it to the church? Why would he be praised if that was just, as one commentator said, obligatory? If it was an obligation, why would he be so praised? It was a voluntary act and it was an act of the church, an act of love, as they saw the need of their brothers and sisters in Christ, 
They would sell and then they would give appropriately. For example, with Barnabas. Oh, Barnabas. We're going to come back and look at him later on. The son of encouragement. That was his nickname. They tried to break down Barnabas and they can't quite clarify exactly how they get the idea of encouragement. But I would just suggest to you, whether or not you can break down the word, all you got to do is look at his life. And you can see an encourager. I'm I'm kind of ready. I almost just stopped and preached on him this morning. I'm afraid some of y'all may not come back next week or two. Barnabas came and he gave willingly. He sold. Now he was a Levite. I didn't think Levites owned property. But yet the scripture says he was from Cyprus as well. So Levites were not supposed to own property in Israel proper. I believe he actually had some land in his home of Cyprus. And he saw the need of the church. He saw the need of his brothers and sisters. And he sold that property. And he came and brought it before the apostles, brought it to the church and said, basically, use it to meet those needs that are here. It is a wonderful, wonderful passage that reminds us of generosity, that reminds us of how we are to meet physical and material and even possession needs that people have. We are to meet, listen to me, we are to meet the physical needs that we see around us. God has blessed us and he has given us resources to to somehow turn that back around and bless others to meet physical needs. All throughout the Scripture, all throughout the Scripture, there are passages that speak about how we ought to care for those who are underprivileged, those who find themselves in poverty, right? Okay, you just forced me to read these Scriptures. (laughs) That's the reason I didn't put them in the PowerPoint, because I thought they'd just agree with me this morning. Sorry, guys, but they didn't, so let me read the passages so they get it in their minds, okay? Luke chapter 3, verse 11. He who has two coats, let him share with him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Psalm 41, 1. Blessed is he who considers the poor. Proverbs 14, 31. He who oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is kind to the needy honors him. Proverbs 21, 13. He who closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself cry out and not be heard. Proverbs 28, 27. He who gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. In Isaiah 58, 10. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire with good things and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters fail not. The scriptural testimony is we ought to be concerned about those who are least fortunate, those who are poor around us. Amen? Amen. Good. That way I can save the other scriptures over here, all right? (laughs) We are to be concerned. Scripture teaches us that. We ought to look at those who are in need. And we ought to try to meet those physical needs as best we can. May I just say this? 
The reason the government has stepped in to take care of people's needs is because the church of the Lord Jesus Christ failed many years ago. It was never to be the government. It should have been the church of the Lord Jesus Christ who stepped up and said, these are people who are in need and we are there to help them and do what we are called to do. And I'll just go ahead and admit it. We are part of the blame. And there needs to be repentance on our part as we think of those that we should be meeting the needs of, the physical, the material needs. Now, I mean real needs. I do think there are real greeds that we have as well. And all of us can suffer from that. There's a difference between a need and a greed. And the people here, I believe, as you hear them speak about needs, they had real needs. Especially those who were brothers and sisters in Christ. Where were they? Jerusalem. I pointed this out over and over. It was there that they would find some of the most hostile audiences that they would have to share with, they would have to preach the gospel to. It was in Jerusalem, remember, that Jesus was convicted and condemned. It was in Jerusalem that the people, the authorities, were coming against those early disciples. And you don't think that touched them or hurt them economically? You don't think it caused great need that they had? And yet it was the church collectively coming together to say, hey, what should we do? There is a difference between a need and a greed. I'll never forget my first trip to Nicaragua some years ago as I went down with a medical mission team. And I went into some of those communities and for the very first time recognizing a different level of poverty than I'd ever experienced before, ever seen before. Now, I know I'm from North Mississippi. And I know there are a lot of jokes about people from Mississippi and their shoes, or lack of. But let me tell you, I had never seen, I had never seen any type of poverty as I had seen it there in Nicaragua. And I was reminded, one, how blessed we are, but also, too, how responsible we are with the blessings that God has given us. It is not to build our own kingdoms. It is to build His kingdom. God has blessed us so that we can meet the needs so many times of others. And I believe as I look at the Scripture, there is an emphasis upon aiding other believers. I say there are so many opportunities for misunderstanding in this message. And I think this is one of those junctures that I need to stop and make sure that you really hear me, okay? And I, I spoke about this a few weeks ago when we looked at chapter 2, uh, verses 41 and, and through 45, somewhere in there that we, we talked about it. But I want to say again, I believe that God has given us all a responsibility to help those around us, no matter who they are, no matter what they look like, no matter where they come from. I think, I, I think we have a responsibility. Okay? Did you hear me? You, you heard me? Yes. I'm telling you, you delay in this message. You just keep on. I'm going to have to come up to the gathering. That's a more vocal group up there probably. I believe we have a responsibility to help people and to see those around us, no matter who they are or where they come from, we are to 
somehow help meet their needs, especially physically. I believe that. But listen to me. When I look at the New Testament, the priority, the primary responsibility that we have would be taking care of our other brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, that sounds so inward though, doesn't it? There are so many people that would somehow that that would somehow take issue with me on that. I'm not saying that we do it to the neglect of those who are not brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying to you, though, that when you and I are in the family of God, we have a special responsibility to the family, just like you do to your physical family, biological family. And if there's a need in the family, that is when the family rallies and the family says, this is what we will do to help our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because here, in this passage, you see them helping those within the church context. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul said, yes, yes, you do good to everybody. But especially, especially the family of faith. Those who belong to the family of God. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. We've been studying through 1 John on Wednesday night. Listen to what John says. He says, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Brethren, that means those of the family of God. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. John says you ought to love your brother and sister. And if they're in need, you don't shut your eyes to that need. You do what you can to minister and to help that individual. It is giving up yourself. It is giving up, it is giving up your own selfish identity and saying, I want to help. Whatever God has given me and how he has blessed me, I want to help. Frank Stagg, some years ago, as he was writing a commentary on the book of Acts, he said the pagans were the ones who insisted upon their rights. The Christians, the real Christians, prefer to think about their debts, about how they should be serving one another and seeing one another and the debt that they have to the, to the rest of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Too often in our churches, we talk about our rights, but we forget about our responsibility. Here, the early church came voluntarily meeting the physical material needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I will say to you, you better be sensitive, right? You better be sensitive to the motive that you have in helping. Because the next few verses, I'm not going to read those this morning. You ought to go home and read them. But there are those who will come and say, hey, we want to help. But they're doing it not out of their love, but they're doing it out of pretension. And they're doing it probably for their own self-glory. There are two people named Ananias and Sapphira, right? You remember those? Five minutes added to your sermon this morning. 
You think I'm kidding. Ananias and Sapphira. They see Barnabas and then they come. And look, again, I think this reminds us that this is not something that was an obligation of the early believers because they came and they offered. And Peter didn't say, hey, 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 you're in trouble because you're in trouble because you should have given this earlier and this and that. What he says is you've lied. You acted like you gave it all. It was yours. Peter even said it was yours. You didn't have to do this. It wasn't an obligation. It was voluntary. And yet you came and you gave under pretense and deception. And they faced, obviously, some very, very tough discipline. And that early church experienced the holiness of God and righteousness of God. I say to you, you come voluntarily and you give out of your heart. And you give in a loving way. But I want to move real quickly this morning. Because I do believe we meet people's needs. We meet their physical needs in material possessions of helping them when they are down, when they need extra help. But I will say to you as well, we meet their needs, their physical needs, even as they go through Sickness and disease and all kinds of other issues. I want you to see this because I think it's really connected. When you look at chapter 5, well, in verse 12, let me read through this. It says, And through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. And a multitude gathered from surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So here they are. Solomon's colonnade upon the portico there at the temple. And you have Peter, obviously, the, the early apostles, teaching and preaching, just as Peter and John had back in Acts chapter 3. They're there. And it says that all of these people who are broken, those people who have health issues, they are sick, they are diseased, even some who are tormented by unclean spirits, they all come. They all come for some type of help, healing. They come to, to find some type of comfort among the apostles. It says, get this, that they see the power of God there in that place, and they experience it, that they become almost superstitious. They're, they're like, even if we can somehow, we, we can somehow allow Peter's shadow to be cast across us, we will be healed. The shadow of the day was the idea of an extension of the personality. Extension of the personhood. You know, I, sometimes I look at my shadow. <laughs> I wished it was not quite an extension of who I truly was. But here they would, they would say, just if the shadow could fall over us, maybe we would be healed. Now, there's no instance, there's no record that that actually happened. It's just their idea of the power of God. They brought those who were sick. 
because they believed that there was a power within these people that could bring healing. Obviously, that power being God. So let me say this, and again, let me try to work this out for you without any major confusion today. I believe that our God can still heal. I, I believe he can. I know he can. I've seen him heal. People that are diseased, people that have sickness, people that have emotional or mental distress, which can be caused sometimes because of the physical issues that they have. And they are real issues, these emotional, mental issues, distress that they have. I believe that people who are suffering from the oppression of unclean spirits in their lives, any type of addiction or so that, that they have, whether it's alcohol or drugs or pornography or whatever else it is, I believe that God can bring healing to them. I believe this. And I believe that people who are in need still come to the church, the people of God, seeking help and comfort. Now, now, now let me, again, James chapter 5. James chapter 5 says that if any among you are sick, what you are to do is to call the elders. You're to call those who are the leaders of the church, and they will come, and they will pray over you. It even talks about the anointing of oil, and I know some of you are getting really nervous now. I see it. Could call some of you out. The anointing of the oil in the day, I believe, it was olive oil that was used to bring comfort in a sense to the body. Okay? There was nothing I'm going to get in trouble. There was nothing special about that oil. The power was not in the oil. The power was in God was in the prayer that was offered. Now, I, I think it was good because it comforted the patient. It, it was refreshing. So when I read that passage, what I hear is, hey, take your medicine. You should never just stop taking your medicine. God has given us these resources. Go to your doctor. There are some doctors in here. I believe that God's given them a gift of healing. Now, I know the gift of healing may look different than what you kind of have thought about it before, but I think that some of these doctors, they have gifts of healing. I think these nurses, I think many others in that medical profession. So I say go. There's nothing wrong with going. But just know that ultimately it is God who brings healing. And he uses any resource he wants. Well, how about these people that just touch people? I, I, you know what? I don't want to get too much in that. I just want to say to you that even Paul, think about it, there were moments that he could bring healing and moments when he could not bring healing. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. But Paul could heal the crippled man at Lystra. He could, he could resuscitate a guy named Eutychus. Remember Eutychus? You don't remember him? You need to go read something about him. Some of y'all, some of y'all remind me a little bit of Eutychus. <laughs> Paul's preaching, and he preached a long time. And old Eutychus, he finally got so sleepy that he was just rolling back and forth there in that window. Before you know it, boom, out the window. You don't think that's in the Bible, do you? Some of you just look at me like he's telling that. He was dead. He was dead as a door now. 
Paul comes down and resuscitates him. I say that to you. You better pay attention because Paul ain't around anymore. <laughs> I can't do it. Sorry. There were times Paul could heal. But there were other times when he could not. He could not heal his own thorn in the flesh. He could not heal Timothy's ailing stomach. He could not heal Epaphroditus' sickness. He could not heal Trophimus, who was left ill at Miletus. Paul could not. But I'm going to tell you that God can heal in his own way, in his own determination, in his own will. I believe that. I had written down some who had had surgeries and issues this week. And then I looked around and I, I see people in here that had back surgery a few weeks ago. I know there's somebody that had heart surgery just about two or three weeks ago. There are people this week that are in this place that had biopsies for possible cancer or anything like that. There are people in this place that are getting ready to have replacements, whether knee replacement or hip replacement. Listen, some of you all in here, you are like the bionic people, all right? I'm just going to say it. There are people in here that maybe experience the difficulty of Parkinson's. There are all kinds of diseases that have come against us. And because of that, there is mental and there is emotional strain. There is all kinds of stuff. But let me say to you, the church still should be a refuge where people that are going through those physical issues should be able to find comfort and strength through God, through His presence. And as we pray for one another, they should find a place where their needs are met. Because when I look at this passage, not only material possessions, but those who were so ailing and broken, they found their place there within the church. When circumstances crush us to the point that our faith falters, that's when we need believing friends the most. We need them. As Rick Warren said some years ago, he said, The truth is everyone needs and wants to be loved. And when people find a church where members genuinely love and care for each other, you would have to lock the doors to keep them out. Folks, you and I are the church. And yes, there are moments our needs, we hope, are addressed. But how about how we turn around then and address other needs? Because God has brought us through these moments. It's not just about how our needs are met. It's about how we can meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I love old John Wesley's exhortation some years ago. I mean, he encompasses it. He, he captures it so well when he said, Do all the good you can, by all means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. We meet people's physical needs as a church. And I want to leave you, though, with this. I don't want to just tag it on, but I do want to just try to summarize it up by also saying to you, that we not only meet physical needs, we meet spiritual needs. Because I'm afraid that'll get lost if we're not careful in this passage.
because they're coming together, taking care of each other materially, taking care of each other physically. They're helping one another. But don't ever forget the spiritual needs that people have. Verse 33, back in chapter 4 said, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Mega power and mega grace. That's the Greek word, mega. Big power, big grace. People could find as they testified of the resurrection of Jesus. Remember they had prayed for boldness and what happened? They received boldness. And they talked about the resurrection of Jesus. Later on in verse 14 of chapter 5 that we read a moment ago, it said believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. In other words, people were coming to be healed physically, but they also found spiritual healing. And as necessary as it is to meet people's physical needs, you and I must never substitute that for meeting people's spiritual needs. I'm afraid sometimes in our churches we have allowed physical needs to replace the idea of spiritual needs. Now, it's not either or. I didn't say that. It's both and. You meet physical needs, but you also want to meet people's spiritual needs. Why is that? Because people are spiritually poor without the Lord Jesus Christ. They are in poverty. They are bankrupt. I was a child some years ago watching TV on Sunday night. We only had about four channels, maybe three, the local channels. And on Sunday night, there were certain things that would come on. In particular, there was a, there was a World Vision uh, commercial that came on for about 30 minutes. I still remember this to this day. I saw the World Vision. I saw the physical poverty. And I was a child, and I'm going to tell you that it disturbed me so badly that I literally became physically sick. I remember that night going and just becoming sick to my stomach because of what I'd seen of the, of the poverty. And it moved me. And it should move us when we see humanity suffering in such a way. But you know what should move you as well? To think about that and to think about how a lot of people around this world today, spiritually, they reflect that type of horror, that type of poverty. They are wasting away without the Lord Jesus. Sometimes we put that to the back of our mind because it's not as easily discerned when it's spiritual. There are folks who are lost. The scripture says that our righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags before God. We are paupers without the Lord Jesus. We are in poverty. And you know what? Even those of us who've accepted Christ, we can forget that we are still dependent upon him as well and his wealth. The church of Laodicea, Revelation 3, Revelation 3, 17 in particular, Jesus looks at that church and he says, Because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, he says. 
You got it all, and yet you are still spiritually poor. Folks, when we tell people about Jesus, it's basically the idea of one beggar telling the other beggars where the bread is, right? We're all spiritually lost without the Lord Jesus, spiritually poor. We're dependent upon Him for our sustenance. There are those who are spiritually poor. There are those who are spiritually sick. Don't miss it. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, I come for the sick. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his stripes, you and I have been healed. And you, and you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. Not only we're sick, we're just dead without Christ. And while we want to address the physical needs of people, and we want to help them in their poverty, we want to help them as they face all kinds of physical, mental issues in their lives, we must not forget, we must not forget that we must meet their spiritual need. And their need, just as our need, was for Jesus himself. What would it profit a man if he would gain the whole world, and yet he would, he would forfeit his own soul? We could give them bread. We could give them something to eat, build them houses. We could somehow help our brothers and sisters. We could help people outside these doors. But if we don't give them Jesus, we have missed. We have missed the opportunity. Because it is through Jesus that they will truly come to see their spiritual need met. My friends, let me just say this to you as we close. Don't just build a person a house. Introduce them to the carpenter from Nazareth. Don't just give them a drink of water. You point them to the living water that can quench their thirst. You don't give them a piece of bread and just leave them alone. You tell them about the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, that can sustain them. You don't just give them money. You tell them about the greatest treasure you've ever found, the pearl of great price. You don't just even heal them or bring healing to them. You don't do that. You point them to the great physician who is able to take care of all their needs. You don't just comfort them. You tell them about the Prince of Peace that will give them something that will surpass every understanding in their life. I say to you, I say to you, that we must not just meet the physical needs. We must meet the spiritual needs around us. Would you commit yourself to that? Would you give yourself wholly to this? Oh, what's the old song years ago, Jeremy? People need the Lord. They used to sing that song some years ago. And you know what? The truth of that message is still the same today. People still need the Lord. 
Would you join me in being the church to meet the needs physically, but to meet the needs spiritually of those we come in contact with? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning. We bow before you, and first of all, we pour our gratitude back out toward you. Because God, in this place, you have blessed us, yes, with material and physical resources. You have given to us even the coat on our back, the meal we're going to eat in just a few moments. God, it is all because of you and your graciousness to us. May we never forget it. May we never become so dependent upon us that we forget that we are truly dependent upon you. And God, would you use the resources that you've given us to purpose, to intentionality of helping others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Whether it be here in this local body or even brothers and sisters in Christ that may be in the community, in this nation or overseas. And God, <laughs> how grateful we are not just for the material possessions, but God, for how you have met our spiritual needs. Because we know that all of us in this place were sinners, and we still fall short of the glory of God. And yet you loved us so much that you gave us your best. You sent your son for us. And God, through him we have life. God, help us to be life-giving people when we walk out of this place. And help us to address the spiritual needs through your son. We pray it now, and we ask for you to move during this moment of commitment and invitation. Help us to commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.